God, it's been a long morning already. It's really good this morning. Um, I was up early. My apologies. Um, because I've been reading through the Christmas story, and people say Christmas is for, for the kids. You know, have you heard that before? People say, oh, Christmas is for the kids, isn't it? It's kind of as if it's, as if it's kind of just something that you can put to one side and let the kids enjoy it, and we'll, the adults don't need to worry about it too much. But I've been reading through the Christmas story, and I was a bit concerned because I don't think it is for the kids so much. Uh, and there's some, I wasn't sure. I've got kind of almost two versions of what I was going to say today. Because uh, some one's kind of a bit racy and one's a bit less so in some of the stories that are there. And, and I'm only reading from a genealogy. Um, but there's some stuff in, in the stories in the Bible that you, you, I wouldn't necessarily want the year sevens and upwards in. So I think we're okay today. Great. You're all wondering what on earth I'm going to talk about now, aren't you? Um, I want to talk about this topic. Your history is not your hindrance. Your history is not your hindrance. And uh, the gospel narratives in Matthew's gospel start uh, in quite a, quite a powerful way. It's not immediately obvious to us reading in our versions, um, but they do actually start in quite a powerful way. And this is how Matthew starts his gospel. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. That's a huge opening to the gospel. I, you don't realize it originally, but, but it's, it's just a massive opening to the whole of the New Testament and particularly to this gospel. It's big. When you read this in the, the Greek, the original text, this is written in its very simple words, but it just says, a book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's less words than that because it includes the A and the of the in part of the actual words. So it just says, book, beginnings, Jesus Christ. And very simple words, but very punchy. So right at the beginning, Matthew's saying, I'm going to tell you the story of the one who is the Christ, the Messiah. I'm going to now tell you the story of the Messiah who was to come, the promised one. The one who, and he goes on to say, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And what he's doing there is he's pulling out the big guns right at the beginning. For a Jewish reader reading this, he's you'd be kind of confronted by, by, by what Matthew's saying as he's writing this gospel. He's getting right in at the beginning the who's who, the Jesus line, the story of, of, of Jesus' birth and, and everything else is going to come after this genealogy because Matthew's going to front load his story with this particular phrase, a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. He's saying right at the beginning that this, this man, this man Jesus, I'm going to tell you about him a bit later on. I'm going to tell you his story, but right up front, I'm going to lay my cards out to change the analogy. I'm going to tell you who he is. This Jesus is the Messiah. He's Jesus Christ. Matthew uses the phrase often Jesus the Christ, but here he's saying Jesus Christ and tying those two terms together. Jesus is the Christ. He's also the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, David was a, a, a king appointed by God, uh, and God had promised that the Messiah would come from David's line. So Matthew at the beginning saying, he's, he, he's here. This is the one I'm talking about, the king who is a descendant of David. And Abraham, the great father of the faith, Matthew's also saying, Jesus is coming in the line of Abraham. He's got a particular purpose he's going to demonstrate. 
Now, Matthew goes on to tell stories of Jesus' miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, all that's in there. But right at the beginning, he's proving who Jesus is. And he begins to trace Jesus' line. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And so it goes on through Matthew chapter 1 down to verse 16. Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. Starting with Abraham, going through David, and ending up with these words. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. He starts with Jesus Christ, he ends with Jesus Christ, and he's got through this particular chapter, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Jesus. Now, he misses some out quite intentionally. He misses them out because the, the, the numerical value of the term David, the word David is 14, and he's showing 14 before and 14 after, and so he has to miss some out to get to that. And that's okay in a Jewish um, genealogy because father of doesn't necessarily literally mean father of, it means ancestor of. And so you can do that. You can, you can make the, the kind of the generations work to prove your point, if you like. He's, oh, there is a lineage, and he's tracing it through. He just misses a few out along the way. There's something missing from this genealogy. You may have noticed it already. Churches in the UK are often more populated by women than by men, and you may have noticed that there's no women's names mentioned in this genealogy. If that cropped up. And normally, you wouldn't need to, in this culture, record women in a genealogy, but Jewish genealogies often did. They would often talk about Sarah, Abraham's wife. They would often also include Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. Right at the beginning, these women who were such key figures in the faith of Israel would be included as part of the lineage, part of the line, part of the story. But Matthew doesn't choose to put them in. He does, however, choose to put in some different women. The next verse, and I've picked a couple of verses out, says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then it goes on, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother, mother was Ruth. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. He does include some women. He misses out the ones that you'd normally get in a Jewish record, and he includes ones that you probably wouldn't normally get. And I want to look at these four women today, because I think they tell us something very powerful about our own story, but about the gospel and about Jesus. I've said at the beginning, your history is not your hindrance. And we see in these amazing people that we've got displayed, three of them, possibly four, were not from Israel. They were Gentiles. They were outside of God's people. And this is massive. This is huge that in this line tracing from Abraham through to Jesus, Matthew should insert intentionally Gentiles into this list. Not only women, but Gentiles. And he's putting them in on purpose into this list of people. You know, sometimes people feel that they're born on the wrong side of the tracks. 
You get that sometimes in some towns where there's a railway line that divides the town and uh, you, you kind of house prices on one side are sometimes more expensive than house prices on the other side and there literally is a right side and a wrong side of the tracks. And you can feel sometimes as if you've been born in the wrong side of the tracks, whichever way round it is, that you don't fit, that you don't belong. And that happens n- nowhere more than in the Bible when you've got God's people, the people of Israel who've been chosen as his people and those outside appear to be outside. You're Jewish by birth. Traces down the family line, through the mother's line particularly. But to to limit our thinking about Israel to to just the Jewish people born as Jews would be to restrict what God's actually doing through Israel. And to miss off the massive theme that Matthew's tapping into here, which is the theme of mission. You see, right from the very beginning in, in the book of Genesis chapter 12, When God promises to Abraham, God says to him, I'll make you into a great nation and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise to Israel is a promise to the nations. The promise to Abraham is a promise to the nations. And Jesus is coming in this line, this great missionary line of a nation called to represent God to the people of the world. God's promise to Abraham was a promise to the nations. And that carries on. There's another passage. There's lots of passages. I've just picked out another one from 1 Chronicles 16, which says that that Israel is God's chosen ones. And uh, I think I've got this on the screen for you. There we go. Remembers the wonders he's performed, his miracles and the rulings he's given. You children of his servant Israel, you descendants of Jacob, his chosen ones. And if you read verses like that, you read it as if Israel are the only chosen people of God that they're special, which they are, that it's exclusive, which it is, and that nobody else can join, which actually they can. Because Israel's called by God as his special people with a missionary purpose. Christ comes to the earth to fulfill that missionary purpose of God as a Jewish man born into a Jewish family. Still, he's representing this missionary call of God. And we see in verse 8 of this same passage the call to Israel to let the whole world know what God has done. We saw also in verse 24, publish his glorious deeds among the nations. And God chose one group of people not to save them alone, but to reveal his glory to them and through them to the whole of the nations of the world. You and I fit into that line. You and I fall into that group of people who've been blessed because God came to the nation of Israel. And here in Matthew's gospel, We've got three, probably four of these women are outside of Israel, but they're brought in. Whatever your background, whatever side of the tracks you were brought up on, there's space for you. God has a radical agenda of inclusion. Uh, These women weren't just non-Jews. They were pretty much from all the problem people you could possibly be from. Uh, Tamar was probably a Canaanite who the Israelites had massive problems with. Uh, Rahab was from Jericho. The Israelites destroyed that. And again, they had problems with them because they were Canaanites. Many gods often worshipped, including child sacrifice. Big problems there. Ruth, um, she was on there, was a Moabitess. Uh, They worshipped false gods too. They sacrificed animals. They as did the Israelites. They included sexuality as part of their worship rituals. Uh, and, And so... Uh, devastating was their form of worship that in Deuteronomy 23 it says there's no Moabite even down to the 10th generation may be accepted into the assembly of God's people. Bathsheba was a Hittite. 
Again, many different gods that they were worshipping. These women came from backgrounds that were abhorrent to Israel, and yet they're included in Jesus' line. Jesus came for all people, not just a few. Beyond one nation. Secondly, we see in this story, and I'm going to pick out a few bits of the stories of these ladies uh, today, that God, that our shame doesn't limit us, that it doesn't become a hindrance for the future. Genesis 38 is the story of this lady called Tamar. Now, it's not a pleasant story. story goes that Judah is one of one of the early patriarchs Joseph's brothers leaves his brothers and he goes down to stay with a man of Adullam and there Judah meets the daughter of a Canaanite man he marries her she becomes pregnant she gives birth to a son called Ur everybody say Ur just checking you're still awake Ur it's a great name isn't it not Ur that Abraham came from, that was U-R. This is a different Ur, this is E-R. Okay, so that's, Judah got his first wife called Ur. She'd never know if you were talking to her or just thinking, would she? But anyway. <laughs> she had a, so that was his son. Sorry, he had, this his son was called Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to another son called him Onan. And she gave birth to another son and called him Shelah. So we got Judah got married, he's got three boys, and Judah goes and gets a wife for Ur, his firstborn son. And this girl's name is Tamar. She's the lady we're talking about. But the Bible says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. So Tamar, put yourself in Tamar's position. She's, she's married to this guy called Ur, so she's the one who he's not sure if he's, she's thinking or what, if she's actually calling his name. But she's married to this guy and he does something that's, that's wicked. So God puts him to death and now she's left a widow. So she's on her own again. Got married and now she's widowed at a young age. She's got no one to look after her. She's got this weird extended family that she's been brought into. And she's on her own. And so the under the kind of the pattern of the culture of the day, the responsibility within the family falls to uh, Ur's brother then to take Tamar as his wife and to look after her and to cherish her and to provide children through her. The Bible says this of Onan. Judah says to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was so wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So poor Tamar, she's been married twice, still has no children, has been widowed twice. Both times God's just gone, no, that's wicked. She's struggling, this poor girl. Judah then promises Tamar to live in his house. And if he does, then when his third son has grown up, she can then marry his third son and he'll provide her with a child. And this is kind of the situation that we're reading here. This poor girl. Now, lo and behold, the son grows up. Judah doesn't let her get married to him. And Tamar's left on her own in her father-in-law's house. And the story goes that she dresses up as a prostitute. She takes off her widow's clothes and puts on a veil and goes to a shrine. 
and her father-in-law visits the shrine and sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant. She gets pregnant with twins. Her father-in-law finds out that she's pregnant with twins and says, this is outrageous. You should be put to death. And cunningly, she said, well, when just after they'd slept together, would you leave me your staff and your seal? Uh, and later on, when he's accusing her of having slept with somebody and saying she should be put to death, she says, well, I'm, I'm actually pregnant by the man who these belong to, the staff and the seal. And, and he then is convicted of his own wickedness and his own sin. Uh, and and kind of the whole thing is revealed. And in this messy, horrible situation, Tamar somehow is exonerated. And, and the situation is such that she's been so desperate so covered in shame, overlooked by others, overlooked by Judah, mistreated by her, probably by her first husband, certainly by her second, and ignored by her father-in-law. She goes through this drastic act that we think is pretty repulsive. Um, but in doing so, her line is preserved, and she's included in Jesus' genealogy. Now we look at this kind of story and go, oh, the whole thing's horrid. I just don't connect with anything in this story other than Tamar's pain. But somehow, God sees something redemptive in this whole story. What we look at, look at and go, oh, that's just gross. He sees as redemptive. When we still feel something of that shame. And there's an interesting little note in this story. She was pregnant with twins. And as, as they're being born, one hand emerges first. And, and there's a scarlet thread that is tied around the little boy's wrist. And then the hand gets taken back and his brother's born and then he's born. But the scarlet thread, just hang on to that thought. So we see in Tamar's story that our history is not our hindrance because God takes us beyond our shame. Jesus sees beyond the shame that might feel, you might feel is on your life and he calls you again. We see also, and I've invented a word for this, uh, beyond our stuckness. I don't think stuckness is a word, but I couldn't think of something else that worked here. So that's what you got. Um, Salmon. I don't know if he's called Salmon or Salmon. I'm going to call him Salmon because uh, it just helps me to think of him not as a fish. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Matthew 1, verse 5. Now, when the next, this is the next lady. Now, you might think the Tamar story was pretty dodgy, but we get to the next one. And, and this is Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua is sending out the spies into Jericho, particularly over the whole land, but particularly into Jericho, to, to, to look at it and to see whether they can take the land and what, what's going on there. And we get to this situation where the spies of Israel go to the city and they go and stay in Rahab's house. Now, it just so happens that Rahab's a prostitute. So he thought Tamar was in a difficult situation. Rahab is also in a difficult situation. Uh, and Rahab's a prostitute. She shelters these guys. When they, they, when they come looking for her, them, the, when the people of the city come looking for them, she hides them up in the roof uh, of the, the house that she's in that's built into the city walls. And then she says, oh, no, no, they, they went. They, they've gone somewhere else when they come looking for them. And then she lets the guys down and off they go. But before they go, she says to them, remember me. I've heard the stories about your God. I've heard the stories about what your God is doing, about how you were delivered from Egypt and brought into this land and how you defeated people. Remember me and remember my family. And there's a deal struck between Rahab and the spies. And the deal is this, that if, the, if she hangs a scarlet rope from her window, when they come to attack, they will keep her and whoever's in that room safe. Scarlet cord around the wrist, scarlet cord from the window. I just wonder if there's a connection there. 
between those two ladies. And so as the Israelites come back and attack and Jericho's walls fall, Rahab and her family are preserved. She intentionally gathers her family together. She intentionally lets down the cord and all who are with her are saved. To get to that point, Rahab had to make a choice because everything she knew was in Jericho. It was familiar to her. And she had to leave it behind to get to something that was ahead of her. Her past could not hold her. She had to get beyond the familiar and have faith in the future. She had to grab hold of the faith that she had because she'd heard the stories of Israel. And later on we read that faith comes by hearing the gospel. Well, Rahab heard the stories of Israel and was transformed because of those. She had faith. And thirdly, we see that faith makes room for others because Rahab had faith enough in the guys that she was looking after to say, remember me and my family. Rahab crops up elsewhere too. Such is her faith, this prostitute, this woman that you may not want to associate with. And guys, if you did want to associate with, I'd like to know why. Um, But anyway, Rahab, this woman, who you may not want to associate with in polite company, it says this, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She had faith, and she responded by faith. Uh, Katie was involved with in, in, in Holland, is that right? With a group called YWAM, working with prostitutes, people who are broken often in themselves and, in, uh, and are feeling so stuck, but bringing God's grace into their situation and showing them that God loves them just as they are. It was by faith that Rahab wasn't put off by her history, by her boundaries, by all the limitations that should have been on her. But she said, remember me. Now, there's actually a theological debate around Rahab. In in James, it says this, Rahab, she was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. And there's a theological debate that rages around Rahab. Was she saved by her faith or was she shown righteous by her actions? And theologians debate over this and go, well, it's obviously by faith. No, it's by actions. And, and the rest of us reading the Bible go, well, it's probably by both, actually. Because probably, as you, if you read James, you read that it's no good saying you've got faith if your life doesn't show it. And, and it's no good doing lots of stuff and thinking that's enough to get you to God because it doesn't. It's only faith that gets us to God. And so we combine the two and go, actually, Rahab had faith and Her faith was demonstrated by her actions. Jesus, in his ministry, rescues those who are stuck. Rescues those who cannot see a way out. Who respond with faith. Ruth, different situation. But Ruth's story starts with famine and death and pain. man called Elimelech is from Bethlehem. Interesting, he's from Bethlehem, isn't it? Goes to Moab. That place I mentioned earlier, where Moabites weren't allowed into the people of God for ten generations. And this man, Elimelech, goes to Moab because there's a famine. And when he's there, 
with his wife Naomi and his two sons, he dies. And he leaves Naomi with two sons. And she finds wives for her sons. One's called Orpha and the other's called Ruth. And they live for ten years and then both of Naomi's sons die too. Sorry, it's a happy sermon this morning, isn't it? Sorry about this. So we've got Naomi and Ruth and Orpha. And all the fellows have died. If nothing else, ladies, you'll be going home to check your life insurance, won't you, when you get after this? Because we've had all the fellows dying so far. Make sure they're well insured. Um, And this is the situation that we find ourselves in. And it's a painful situation. And Naomi goes back to Israel. She gets to the point of going, do you know, I'm just going home. And she says to the two girls, you're welcome to... I think she doesn't say you're welcome to come with me. She says, go home. Stay in your land. Make a new life for yourselves. I have, I'm not going to have any more sons. You're not going to be able to get married to them. There's no hope for you here. And Naomi, actually, when she goes back, she says, I, I'm no longer Naomi. My name's Bitterness. Because that's the pain that she's carrying. Call me Bitterness. That's so hard, isn't it? That's the pain that she's carrying. But something happens. Because Ruth, unlike the other girl, uh, Orpha, who dis- does decide to go back to her own religion and her own extended family, she goes back with Naomi, or Mara, bitterness, and she goes back and she says, no, I'm going to come with you, Naomi, and your God's going to be my God, and your people will be my people, and I'm going to walk with you. And I've read that before and wondered if it was actually for her own benefit that she was doing that, and it may have been, but actually the truth is this, that Naomi had nobody left to provide for her. She's going to throw herself on the mercy of the people of Israel, but she's got nothing left and no family and no one to provide. And I think actually Ruth is going back out of a sign of commitment and faithfulness to her mother-in-law. She's going not thinking of herself, but she's going devotedly, despite her own pain, to go and serve Naomi to make sure that she's provided for. And so she does. She goes back. And, and the story unfolds in the book of Ruth. It's not many chapters, but it's a lovely story about how this lady Ruth becomes, uh, is, comes to know a man called Boaz, and how they get married, and there's a redemptive theme there, that's an incredibly redemptive theme that speaks about the way Jesus saves us. But this story shows us that God can help us find a purpose that's bigger than our pain. It shows us that when we're faithful to God, that, that we can find a way through even our pain and our loss and our disappointment and our suffering. That even when we're really struggling, we can trust him and find a way through. Jesus comes and heals those living with pain. Uh, The last one is this, is Bathsheba. I know I'm racing through these, but I need to for time's sake. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Uriah was a hero. When you read the stories of David, the king, we read of his 30 mighty men. I love the, the account that we read of the 30 mighty men, because at the bottom it says, and there were 37 of them. I love the fact that they're called the 30 mighty men, but there's actually 37 of them. Uh, But Uriah was one of those 30 mighty men. He was one of David's soldiers, a faithful soldier, a reliable man. And the story goes that David the king looks out of his window one day when he should have been at war 
because all the other kings were off at war and the troops were away and David sees Bathsheba having a bath and he spies her and says, oh, I like what I see. And he summons for her to be brought to the palace. Now Bathsheba's married. Her husband, Uriah, is in battle. And the story goes that as they sleep, David and Bathsheba sleep together, she becomes pregnant. And David concocts a plan to try and show Uriah that the baby's his. And so he gets Uriah back from the battlefield and says, oh, I'll go and sleep with your wife and have some time and... and, and uh, he says, no, far be it from me. So he stays in the palace. David gets him drunk and he, he refuses to. And the story goes on. And eventually David gives up. Uriah's a righteous man. And uh, David instructs the captain of the guard to station Uriah on the front lines so that he gets killed in battle. Again, it's a horrible story. And David, through his manipulation to cover up his own sin and his own shame, doesn't front up to it, but he, he manipulates and he schemes and he finds a way to, to try and just get rid of Uriah, get rid of the problem. And he marries Bathsheba. And he's called out for all this. It doesn't go without mention. Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and says, you're the man who's done this. Uh, and the baby that Bathsheba's carrying uh, is, is born and then die, the child dies. Uh, it's, again, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And Bathsheba's left stained and marked by this. Not literally, but spiritually. And when we sin, it causes a stain. When we sin, it's, it's, it's grievous. And actually, we treat it lightly sometimes. We act a bit like David to try and make it all go away, and it doesn't, and we can't. And our sin affects us. But yet, this story shows us that Jesus comes to take away our stain that he comes to rescue us, that God can choose our darkest moments for good. There's a lovely, lovely verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, and it's, this is after the babies dies and after Bathsheba has uh, slept with David again. They're now married properly this time. And uh, it says this, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she went, he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And these are the verses I want to focus on. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet, to name him Jedediah. So Solomon, Jedediah, same, same child. God can turn our darkest moments for good. So we've quickly looked at four remarkable women. Four of them, who end up in this line of Jesus, this incredible genealogy where Matthew's starting his gospel saying, I'm going to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Oh, and by the way, have a look at these four women's stories. Stories of pain and loss and suffering and stain and shame. And yet he's saying there's hope beyond all of that. Firstly, he says this, that they're part of something big and we are part of something big. We're radically included by God. Secondly, he's saying they're part of something life-changing. The gospel is all about setting people free. And Jesus came to set us free. Just like those four women, each of them had a story of God's grace. Each of them had a story of redemption. Each of them were brought into God's people when they shouldn't have been. They were redeemed. They were saved. They were rescued. They show us something of our own story. And finally, we see that all of us can be part of what God's doing by faith. 
I don't believe our history is a hindrance to us being used by God. But I do believe it can be. I just want to end with this thought. That all of those women could have chosen, maybe not Bathsheba, because we don't really know what choice she had in that situation. The other three certainly could have chosen to stay in their pain, in their shame, in their loss, in their disappointment. They could have chosen to stay stuck. But all three of them chose to take hold of a choice of faith or faithfulness or courage. Tamar showed courage when she did that thing that we think, ah, and slept with her father-in-law. She showed courage to do that, to put herself in a vulnerable position. Rahab showed faith when she said, remember me and my family, and she hid the spies. Ruth showed faithfulness. And I just want to encourage us, whatever situation you're in, whether you feel like you're born the wrong side of the tracks or the right side, whether you feel pain or shame or that you're stuck, this story, this genealogy speaks to us about hope. And it says there is hope in Jesus. Let's pray together.